0: Welcome to Building Blocks, connecting people, places, and policies. I'm your host, Laurel Blatchford, Senior Vice President and Chief Program Officer at Enterprise Community Partners. As a proven and powerful nonprofit, Enterprise creates opportunity for low- and moderate-income people through affordable housing and diverse, thriving communities. Building Blocks is a space for thought-provoking conversations about the current issues, trends, ideas, and big questions facing the affordable housing and community development field in the United States. Today, we're going to talk about Opportunity Zones, which were established by Congress in the Tax Cut and Jobs Act of 2017, and created an exciting new opportunity to increase the amount of private capital invested in distressed communities by allowing investors to roll unrealized capital gains into pooled opportunity funds. So, that is quite a mouthful. Let me unpack that a little bit for you, and then I'm going to turn it over to my two guests to really get into the details. Originally introduced as the Investing in Opportunity Act, Opportunity Zones were designed to promote economic recovery by driving long-term investment capital to rural and urban low-income communities across the country. So through this investment opportunity, Congress has empowered governors to nominate up to 25% of the low-income community census tracts in their states as quote-unquote Opportunity Zones. This designation is important because these census tracts will be eligible to receive investment over the next decade through new investment vehicles called opportunity funds. These opportunity funds will provide equity investments for activities such as improving real estate and supporting small business formation. So how does this work? If individuals or companies invest in those selected communities through opportunity funds, they can then receive graduated tax benefits depending on the number of years for which they invest. So again, we're going to dive more deeply into this in a minute, but just want to offer a little bit more context um, before we start. Uh, This is quite different than other place-based policies for redevelopment, like empowerment zones or new market tax credits, both of which have been effective tools in different ways. I think this design was meant to address perceived barriers to the success of previous programs. And also, the fact that it's an uncapped tax incentive means it has the potential to generate far more investment in the years following implementation, so this will be really something to watch, not only in the near term, but in the long term. I would also just remind folks that there's an estimated $6 trillion in unrealized capital gains on the books of corporations and individuals, and so this vehicle and these funds, has the potential to transform neighborhoods. But the big question we're thinking about here at Enterprise is who will benefit most and what kinds of investment will be most effective? This is happening very quickly. So the tax bill was passed at the end of 2017. Each state had 90 days following the passage of that bill to nominate census tracts as qualified opportunity zones. Uh, So that was through March 21st, 2018. And um, the other alternative states had was to request a 30-day extension through the end of this month, April. Uh, Nineteen states submitted qualified uh, Opportunity Zone applications that were complete. Um, The remainder of the states and territories uh, requested an extension. So this is really playing out right now, and we'll be eager to see what decisions each of the leaders in those areas have made. During this time, Enterprise has really taken on a leading voice with our partners in the field to make recommendations, and we hope this will be leveraged as a really effective and compelling tool for community investment. That's some background. I'm really thrilled to say that today I've invited Enterprise's Rachel Riley, who's the Director of Impact Investing here at Enterprise, and Flora Araboot, the National, State, and Local Policy Director, onto the podcast to talk about this new initiative and where it might be headed. So welcome, ladies.
1: Sure. Thank you so much for having us, Laurel. Um, I'm Rachel Riley, Director of Impact Investing. I uh, do both public policy work here at Enterprise as well as raise capital through our Impact Note program. And so I get to see both sides of this, both the capital raising aspect, uh, the deployment through our CDFI loan fund, our community development financial institution, as well as how we are leveraging Uh, the experience in doing both of those activities to create new policies and programs at the federal, state, and local level to really effectively uh, ensure that investors are connected to the communities they care about through investment opportunities.
2: And I'm Flora Arabu, National Director for State and Local Policy here at Enterprise Community Partners. My background is in both healthcare and state policy. Um, Having worked for a state housing finance agency, um, working for a state legislature, all of this has been really fascinating for me we have 10 directors across the country who have been watching this really closely and paying attention and engaging their governors and local leaders so it's great to be here
0: so lots of background here that we've really you know jumped into pretty quickly i would just want to start our conversation with i think a pretty fundamental question what impacts opportunity zone investments are likely to produce like what do we think this really means obviously there's a lot of potential but what are we hoping for, and what do we think it's likely to be?
1: The devil's in the details as far as how the rules and regs process proceeds in the, in the coming year. So right now the timeline, as we understand it, and again this is definitely a moving target, is that once states submit their Opportunity Zone designations to Treasury, Treasury will finalize approval of those by mid May, mid June. Um, and then Treasury is now in the process of receiving comments um, on opportunity funds and how those funds will be structured. And then there's, in addition to that, going to be the process of standing up the rules around the program. So the legislation gives us clues around what eligible investments uh, will look like, but there needs to be more meat on the bones to some extent. So IRS is currently in the process of doing that right now again this is a tax benefit so this is sitting with irs and treasury but we do expect to see um final process completed by the end of 2018 and funds stood up and ready to be invested in by early 2019 our best guess
0: thanks and so just back to the question of impact mm-hmm.
1: yeah so the original Sorry. intent of uh, investing in opportunity act as well as opportunity Zones was really to connect investors that were interested in putting their money into distressed communities for what we would traditionally call impact investing um, to support small businesses or uh, real estate opportunities that were credit worthy or investable deals, but they just didn't have um, the wherewithal or the know-how to connect to those opportunities or the investment vehicles to do that. And so, um, and what Opportunity Zones does is it creates the vehicle, the Opportunity Fund, as well as designates the zones, so the Opportunity Zones, and puts um, some structure around that. And so, what I think we're going to see is hopefully um, some of these deals that should have had private investment coming to them, but just didn't because investors didn't know how to how to connect to those deals. So it offers an on ramp for that capital and for those investors.
0: Mm-hmm. And. Interesting, as you talk about this, there is, I would say, a lack of clarity, right? So we're reading legislation, excuse me, the legislation, trying to determine intent. We're looking at what Treasury is going to do in its rulemaking process. We're looking to the states to see what they're thinking. Is this normal uh, from your perspective, maybe both of you having been through various rounds of these kinds of iterations and program rollouts? Sure. I
1: would say this is not normally what we see. What I would say to that extent is there are a number of provisions in Investing in Opportunity Act, which were stripped from the enacted legislation, which was passed in tax reform due to the Bird Rule, which you know we could provide more information on. But there wasn't a public input process. There hasn't been a lot of clarity. And I think we're going to see really skeletal implementation as far as what gets passed at um, the federal level and mainly you know a lot of this has to do with this again being a tax benefit and not a community development program uh, as community development practitioners think about the low-income housing tax credit program and the new market tax credit program we're used to seeing more requirements around reporting different sorts of mandates and we're just um, this is just a different type of tax incentive
0: yeah
2: It's it's funny because to me, I feel like this can be, that this is kind of normal in a way because when you have this many cooks in the kitchen working on a a piece of policy, and remember this was all tied to tax reform that was passed last December, um, you have so many committees, so many review processes that sometimes, you know, the original intention gets kind of lost in the shuffle, and so you can see that not just in federal policy, but at any level of policy. There are a lot of unknowns in this program. I I think we kind of acknowledge that, but that's kind of why we're here today, because we're getting a lot of questions from local leaders who really want to figure out how they can steer dollars towards the specific types of investments that they need and how they can use that to benefit their existing residents. One thing that's not in this legislation is a requirement for community benefit, So when thinking about who will benefit from this, I think there are some unknowns there, but also some opportunities to figure out how leaders can get those funds and get those investments exactly where they need to be.
0: So that's a great segue to the work we're doing in our market. So Flora, if you could just say a little bit more about that. And for those who aren't aware, we have market offices in 10 cities around the country, really focused not only on the city but on the region, sometimes operating at the state or in several states those relationships, I think, have been enormously helpful in in this period of time, right, when you have something like this that's coming out very quickly with skeletal guidance and the need to move fast. So just say a little bit more about how you've been working with the market staff at Enterprise and other partners, and what you see as those kinds of opportunities that are emerging from conversations happening across the country.
2: Well, For state and local policy, we really focus on four priority areas, so that's expanding resources for affordable housing, promoting policies that allow for inclusive and equitable growth, reversing decades-old patterns of segregation and other policies that promote racial equity, and then lastly, tenant protection. I mentioned that because I think Opportunity Zones has the potential to check that first box on expanding resources, and so now it's our job to look at all of those other priorities. For example, in working with our state and local staff, we had been spreading the message, engage your governors, engage your local officials, engage your advocates, that's been the first one. The second one has been request the extension for the deadline in designating um, your, the, the Opportunity Zones. And then uh, lastly, um, engage your governor's office and be part of the process. I think moving forward what our play is going to be on the state and local level is going to be focused on Inclusive and equitable growth and tenant protections. So it's not really anything different from what we normally do in state and local policy We're always thinking about inclusionary zoning The, uh, the use of land trust tenant protections and eviction prevention and all the kinds of things that allow communities to grow in a responsible way and allow existing residents to benefit from that. And I don't think that's going to change. I think it's just going to be
0: um, more aggressive. And so just to, to transit that a little bit more, it sounds like then those things we're focusing on, which have been, you know, we came to those priorities because a lot of communities are wrestling with these issues, you know, predating this program, right? Mm-hmm. And so is your concern or the, what you're hearing from folks on the ground that, this kind of investment runs the risk of exacerbating or reinforcing those pressures, patterns, et cetera?
2: It depends on who you talk to, because I think we're hearing both excitement and concerns on the ground. Um, Certainly, there are a lot of local leaders in areas that are suffering from severe disinvestment over many, many years or even decades that are very excited about the potential of new money to So what's come an in? example
0: of that? Is that like in the Rust Belt, for example? Or? Oh,
2: sure. Rust Belt communities, rural areas that don't often uh, benefit from some of the more like urban type investments mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. are often uh, created. Um, and other areas where there's just really high levels of uh, poverty, um, Appalachia, those areas as well. Um, But we're also hearing concerns from local advocates and other groups, for example, in California, where they have these, you know, runaway rent increases, prices are through the roof. It's just a huge housing crisis, and advocates want to know how they're going to protect their residents and be able to continue to advance their work on affordable
0: housing. That's very interesting. So a real spectrum of responses. You'll be keeping your eye on that, I'm sure. Yeah. So let's shift to the investor perspective. So, mm-hmm. Rachel, if you could talk a little bit about sort of what you're hearing and what you think the different benefits are likely to be, especially given the, the tiered terms that it operates under.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's it's definitely worth noting that Opportunity Zones wasn't created for traditional community development activities, right? Like. It was created to drive private investment into distressed communities and that's really kind of where it stopped it was for economic growth it was for job creation and so as we look at this as affordable housers as as folks that are traditionally in the space of doing high-impact projects the types of activities are gonna look different than what we're used to and the way that we have been approaching it is that Opportunity Zone investments are going to affect the communities that we care about either way, because they're going into distressed communities. But then also there's an opportunity for for us as enterprise, but also for um, the community development sector to leverage this as a new resource, a new equity resource for us to harness new capital to further the work that we're already doing in communities. and so. I think it's a good way to, to sort of square what this is and what this isn't around opportunity zones and investments. And the reaction from investors, so um, this is an alternative to paying capital gains tax. Mm-hmm. So Laurel, as you mentioned, individuals and corporations in the U.S. have about $6 trillion sitting on their books in unrealized capital gains. And this serves as an alternative to paying that capital gains tax. So once they have that gain, they're making a decision at that point to either pay federal capital gains tax, or they can now instead roll that gain into an opportunity fund, which will be certified or registered through Treasury, Um, and those opportunity funds will be investing into opportunity zones for a number of eligible purposes. And the benefits associated with that for the investor are graduated, and really the investment breaks come at 5, 7, and 10 years, with the 10-year tax benefit really being the most beneficial of all. So this is meant to incent that long-term investment into distressed communities. That's how this was designed as far as a policy. So the first uh, tax benefit associated with an investment into an opportunity fund is the initial deferral um, of your capital gain. So, so as soon as you make that first investment into your opportunity fund, the investment of the gain, you can defer that. Um, and the deferral is either until you exit the fund or until December 31st, 2026. So there is a date certain associated with that deferral. Then the second uh, type of benefit associated with opportunity zones investment is this five to seven year step up in basis. So basically at year five, that's the minimum investment that you need to be making in order to receive a reduction in your tax liability associated with the gain. So for a $100 gain for, se- for example, uh, at five years, you would be paying, $90. It would, it would look like a $90 gain. That would be your taxable income. Similarly, once you hit that seven-year investment mark, your step-up in basis is 15%, so it looks like an $85 liability. But then when you go to the 10-year level, you're, again, getting that deferral. You're getting that reduction in basis, um, so the 15% step-up in basis. And then you're also uh, getting what what we're referring to as this um it's a tax exemption on any gain earned on your investment in the fund so any gain you earn on your opportunity fund investment is permanently exempt from tax once you hit 10 years of investment into that fund you're still paying taxes on the original investment into the fund even though you are benefiting in different ways from from that investment but really it is it is that tax exemption that's most beneficial to investors.
0: Yeah, that's pretty significant too.
1: Especially depending on what type of asset you invest in, which is why, you know, all things being held equal for investors, they're getting the same tax benefit whether you invest in a high yield, you know, real estate investment into a luxury hotel or luxury housing versus perceived risky um, investment into a small business that may have low yields, but may on this social benefit scale be more beneficial to the community over the long term.
2: Mm. Hmm.
0: It's really interesting to me to hear this, because you can see you get a sense of the investment sort of scale and the amount of interest this is generating. Um, when governors have been picking those tracks, I think there have been some debate about are you picking winners and losers, right, mm-hmm. and, and sort of what the implications of that are, which is hard because the program is untested. So maybe just talk a little bit more about what scenarios we see playing out locally, if you have examples, but where you think states and others are trying to mitigate that tension and trying to really constructively bring additional resources in, so, could just talk a little bit about that question of, like, how do we see this playing out with the winner- loser dynamic, <laughs> and what we think um, what we think states are doing, and and ultimately how investors are going to react.
2: Well, I mean, I think in a way there there are going to be winners and losers by definition, because in the program you can only. Um, As a governor, nominate 25% of all the qualified census tracts. So, just to give you a sense, in California, for example, they were able to nominate roughly 850 census tracts.
0: Which means that they had several thousand that were left
2: out, right? 75% by definition were not selected. But I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, because one thing we see a lot um, in in all of the states and all of the local governments is dollars just kind of being dispersed with really good intentions and for the public benefit, but without thinking about how those investments can be concentrated in certain areas and how they can be layered on top of other programs and other investments to create impact and actually transform a community that really needs it and that's something that is lacking in a lot of areas and it's something I really believe in. When I worked in the state of Maryland, we had a really great, where they have a really great sustainable communities program and what that program does is funnel money from different state agencies into designated communities so that money isn't just being kind of thrown out there. Um, you know, to, to just any community. It allows governments to think about how they can concentrate on areas of disinvestment, how they can use their money to be more uh, effective and efficient and to leverage private dollars so that then they can uh, ultimately move on and help other communities that, that, that are in need. Yeah.
1: yeah, and that's absolutely right, Flora. And, you know, the flip side of that is when you do concentrate those resources, then are you creating a vacuum of resources coming yeah. out of those other communities, right? Yeah. And that's something that we've been flagging for the White House and other federal um, Well, flagging for the White House is saying, you know, we're being intentional about about messaging that it's important to concentrate resources for all the reasons that you just mentioned, Mm -hmm. but even more so why we need continued federal appropriations for these programs and increased appropriations for these programs Mm -hmm. because these communities that weren't designated are still going to need these resources. And so if we're concentrating resources, how are we ensuring that we're not leaving these communities behind? Yeah.
2: And I'm going to actually tweak my answer a little bit and say that there could end up being winners and losers. It depends on what local leaders do now. Because remember, in every state there are hundreds of census tracts being designated. But just because a census track is designated, it doesn't mean that track will ever see a dollar. Hmm. So local leaders are going to figure out, are going to have to figure out how to attract investments. At the same time, if investments come into a census tract, there's no guarantee that it's gonna benefit the community, the existing residents. So local leaders are also gonna have to figure out now how to put protections in place. And that's gonna be a really tough balancing act, I think.
0: And I would add to another risk that I, having seen programs like this roll out when I was in government, is the political timeline and the investment timeline and the operational or implementation timeline. Those can be lots of different things. So. Mm-hmm. You might say there's nobody benefiting in the five-year window, but there might be in the 10-year window, or maybe there's benefits up front that don't last, right? Right. So those are all things, I think, to consider. Yeah.
1: And I think that's why some of the best practices we saw bubbling up from the state nomination processes, uh, the zone nomination processes by the states, were states that were really engaging the public and being thoughtful about aligning their zone nominations with shovel-ready projects and um, economic development initiatives, as well as really engaging the public as far as um, asking them to raise their hand. So, so saying, you know, yes, in my backyard, we're ready to receive this investment. We have local dollars that we can pair with it. Um, and, and I think that when we're talking about winners and losers, maybe it goes even further beyond, like, who is a zone nomination and, and who's not, but really – which census tracts and which communities are able to put these dollars to best use and maximize the community benefit because they were really thoughtful at the front end in, in selecting the census
0: tracts. Mm. So anything we've missed in this conversation, anything that you want to share with folks at this point in the process? I know we have a, another webinar coming up on April 25th. Yes. So Rachel, if you want to talk about that. But any like tools, tips, anything else you want to say to folks?
1: Yeah, I will say, so there have been so many great tools and resources that have come out um, in the past, you know, two months. We are listing those on our resource page, which is opportunityzonesinfo.org, including a new mapping tool by the St. Louis Federal Reserve that uh, overlays information around uh, communities that are at risk of gentrification Um, that was put out by the Urban Institute um, alongside mapping that the Federal Reserve of St. Louis had already done. And it's called the Opportunity Zones Investment Explorer Tool. And so it um, it helps people understand in their communities which census tracts are eligible to be opportunity zones and what the real risk for displacement and gentrification could potentially be in those communities. And so I think you know we'll probably be looking at that map and understanding to Flora's point like what policies exist or don't exist in those communities and where we can be playing a role in advocating for appropriate um, measures that that help to to guard against that and um, the Beck Center at Georgetown University put together uh, some really great proposed guidelines around what community development could really look like alongside Opportunity Zones and this wish list for for best practices, which is also linked on our website. And on April 25th, as Laurel mentioned, we will be holding our third webinar. um, And that'll be a few days after the final deadline for Opportunity Zones nominations so all states uh, should have reported in at that point we're going to get the best information that we can uh, do some analysis of a select number of states and then just really try to you know share some ideas which we've gathered from experts as well as in our conversations with those states around what's next next and best practices regarding policies and programs to to help ensure and maximize
2: the benefit of opportunity zones And I think what I want to say from the state and local policy perspective is since tax reform passed in December, we've gotten so many questions, particularly from those communities that have seen the impacts of rapid gentrification and have some trepidation about this new initiative. Um, We've gotten a lot of questions around, well, how do we – require these funds to be used in a certain manner or how can we put policies in place that prevent these funds from having this unintended consequence. Um, It's not a federal program. It doesn't have an appropriation with it. I, I I don't think that the future is having state and local governments pass laws that somehow aim to restrict the use of opportunity funds. To me, you know, as a director of state and local policy, It doesn't matter to me what the fund source is. I'm agnostic. We are interested in in more affordable housing. We're interested in responsible, inclusive, equitable growth, honoring racial equity, protecting residents. And that's something that we should be working on all the time, not because there's this new program and we don't know what it's going to do, but because it's the right thing to do and there's going to be more dollars coming in from different kinds of initiatives in the future. And I think that's just really where we're going to be um, focused moving forward in our markets.
0: Well, thank you both for your time today. Um, appreciate your engaging on this and look forward to hearing how it all plays out. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Laurel. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for joining this episode. Upcoming episodes of Building Blocks will focus on a variety of topics in our field and will include conversations with industry professionals, change makers, and enterprise experts. Please send feedback to Podcast at enterprisecommunity.org. And thanks for listening